Professor Paul Weiss, a Sterling Professor of Philosophy at Yale. of RPTS, Regular People Talking Shit. My name's Tank Agnew. Um, I'm your host, and I will still, again, will be joined by my co-host, but again, um, you know, there's still just some more content that I really want to provide to you all. So again, I'm going to come uh, with another episode. And in this episode, what I really want to do is I want to talk about um, that old question, basically, uh, can black people be racist? 
And um, I was thinking about that a little bit because, you know, I was really wondering, like, you know, why, you know, why a lot of us think that or, you know, why, um, why is that question asked? And when I and when you think about it, it is a really good question. So what I did was I kind of did a little bit of digging and I wanted to, you know, try to try to uh, attack it from a historical standpoint or approach to try to kind of answer that question if it is possible for us to be racist. Um, so, uh, again, you know, thank you for joining. Um, you know, my name is Tank Agnew. Again, this is RPTS, Regular People Talking Shit. And um, before we begin, you know, I definitely want to make people aware that, you know, this is definitely a show where the format's going to be really me a lot of times talking to people, not just really giving information, but really getting information from people as well. That way it can then be turned back around and given to everyone else because I really want to, you know, get people's opinions, get people's thoughts, hear what people are, you know, thinking, hear what people are thinking so everybody else can kind of, you know, hear it as well because, uh, you know, it's very important for us to be able to Uh, communicate with each other and make sure that we are uh, organized and understanding, you know, what we're feeling that way when we do approach the powers that be or when we do decide to uh, come together for a greater cause, we're properly organized. So uh, it's definitely something that, you know, I'm really proud that, you know, uh, has started. And, you know, this is just the second episode. But again, you know, thank you for uh, listening. So uh, with that being said, what I'll do is I will go ahead and get started. Now, uh, what you heard was James Baldwin uh, back in 1968 on uh, Dick Cavett's show, and what he was doing was actually debating with a Yelp philosopher by the name of Paul Weiss on uh, the topic of race, and what uh, the philosopher uh, Paul Weiss was trying to say was that the fact that James Baldwin and uh, Paul Weiss are both in, you know, education fields that they have more in common with each other than what Paul Weiss may have with a white man that isn't in that field or what James Baldwin might have with someone that or that's black that isn't in that field and James Baldwin was trying to stress the stress the exact opposite that the fact that my race is different from yours all already separates us and prevents us from being able to say that we are closer to each other than what I would be from someone of my own race that could be in a totally different field and he basically uh brought that back to the fact that it's their institutions that actually um, shed light on uh, whether or not, you know, we can be included with each other and if we have to be grouped with our own race rather than if we can be grouped with different races, if we can come together on a different commonality. So um, that is what really kind of led me to think about, you know, that question, can we be racist? And when I think about it, it's kind of difficult to see how we can be racist. And the reason why I say that is because the institutions that um, are in place are basically are basically institutions that have been in place since slavery and have not changed. And there isn't anything that we can say that we have power over in regard to uh, white people. Or we can say we have this say or we have this 
uh, power over you or we have this power that is equal to yours uh, because of the institutions that they hold, the labor union, um, uh, education. We know exactly that, you know, those institutions were basically created by them and for them and really weren't meant for black people to succeed. Now, the fact that we are succeeding is really not part of the plan. And I can kind of explain that from a historical approach. And that's really what I wanted the focal point to be is really just from an historical standpoint or historical approach to try to kind of tackle that question is, you know, can black people be racist? So, uh, you know, after, you know, after slavery, uh, well, actually, let me back up because, you know, we're coming up on Juneteenth. So, you know, happy Juneteenth to everyone out there. Uh, doesn't matter your race, you know, happy, happy Jubilee Day, also known as Celebration Day. Uh, it's also the Black Fourth of July. And basically what it does is it commem- commemorates the day when um, uh, the, uh, the general uh, 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 Gordon Granger uh, led uh, troops into Texas and basically made uh, the slaves there aware. I believe it was in Galveston, Texas, that, you know, that they that they were asleep, that they were free and that slavery was no longer. And, you know, that is basically what we consider Jubilee Day, because although uh, Lincoln had, you know, wrote uh, wrote the wrote the bill uh, or wrote, wrote the law that, you know, slaves were free, going to be free in 1863, uh, you know, it it wasn't as if that was something that was just, you know, followed right off the bat. And even in 1865, there were still many places that did not give up their slaves. And a lot of times there were slaves who didn't want to leave. So it was kind I would really put that day closer to 1870 than I would 1865. However, you know, that is the day that we commemorate that. So, you know, I definitely don't want to take anything away from that. But if you think about it, it's kind of like 1870 and then another hundred years before actually slavery ended in 1970 when we actually got the Equal Housing Act after uh, there had been so many deaths that had occurred in the 60s. But I digress on that and I'll uh, leave that alone for right now. But when we go back to uh, that event, um, what happened right after that was something that was known as the Freedmen's Savings Bank. And what the Freedmen's Saving Bank was something that was, it was a bank and it was chartered by the U.S. government, although it was a, a private corporation. And basically what it did was it tried to uh, set up um, uh, the African-American community for success, where uh, basically they would have money which would then turn into power. Because one thing that uh, you notice in white America is that whenever there is a lot of money involved, there's always a lot of power that's involved. And whoever has the power has to say so. So money always, money translates into power. Power translate, uh, I'm sorry, money translates into power and power translates into who basically will con- control society. And that was something that uh, white America did recognize right after slavery. And that's why they came up with a Freedman's Saving Bank, the Freedman's Saving Bank. Now, 
it's funny because, you know, there were a lot of good things that came from it. I mean, you know, the bank had like 37 offices in like 17 states. Uh, it had like $57 million in it at one time. It had like 70,000 depositors at one time. But, um, you know, after, um, you know, after slavery, you know, there were still poor economic conditions that we know we were dealing with. So uh, what happened was the bank basically failed and there was a lot of bad loans that the bank took on. And, you know, one huge example was uh, basically there's there was this one company by the name of uh, the Seneca Sandstone Company uh, and basically what the owner did was uh, he took out a bunch of unsecured loans from the bank that were approved by uh, by the bank. And basically when the panic uh, struck in 1873, the quarry couldn't pay back its debts. And that basically undermined the Freedman Bank, the Freedman, the Freedman, uh, the Freedman Bank, because it had so much money that it had borrowed. So basically the bank went bankrupt and then basically closed after 1874. And, you know, um, the person who approved it was a, was a guy named Henry Cook. And he had been brought up on charges, but uh, nobody had ever been in, indicted. And then after uh, they had a, a court inquiry in 1874, uh, he was basically cleared of all charges. Um, and basically that was really the end of the Freedmen's Bank. And there was really nothing else that was really put in place of that to kind of like, you know, help black people to, you know, get on their feet and to then be able to, uh, you know, have their voice uh, out there because once you have money, like I said, you have power and then you can be able to be in the marketplace and then you can be able to have a say so. And without that say so, you're really left to, uh, uh, you know, other people and how they and how they want to use you because you, you, you have no power to say what you will or won't do or what you you know will or, or won't. Uh, deal with basically um, so you know that that was something that really really set black people back and I really don't think that a lot of us you know are familiar with so I mean if you get an opportunity really check out the Freedmen's Bank I mean it, it I mean it's really really interesting to see basically how they uh, you know operated for you know those 10 years after uh, the Civil War so I mean that's something that um, that I really think that you know that you might find interesting now uh, you know, during that time, you also had Reconstruction. And a what a lot of people think that Reconstruction was, was basically, um, you know, uh, them, uh, what was a, a Western civilization or North America b uh, better uh, at is to basically include African-Americans in society. But that was really not the focal point. Um, that's just like with Abraham Lincoln. The focal point for Abraham Lincoln was not to make sure that slavery was abolished. The biggest thing for Abraham Lincoln was making sure that the Union stayed intact. That was his biggest 
issue and that's what his main focus was now later in later on during the war yeah he did say yeah i want uh you know slaves to be free and it, it did cha- i did it did shift so i won't say that it, it didn't shift to then make sure that you know a blacks were then freed it, it did shift however the main goal always remained for the south to be remain part of the union and um after uh, after the war, that's basically what that was uh, that what Reconstruction was meant for. So uh, you know, Reconstruction basically uh, lasted uh, I'd say probably about ten years, and I'm not going to say it wasn't uh, you know beneficial for African Americans because during that time, uh, at between 1865 and I'd say um, 1877, about 12 years during Reconstruction. Um, there were 16 African Americans that were actually put in Congress, and I mean, you know, they had a constituency. So I mean, that was that, that was huge, you know, to to really uh, come out of slavery and then you know have 16 African Americans representing uh, representing people in government, um, you know, representing white people too. But it comes back to the fact that this inst- the institution is not something that was created for black people or something that was even meant for black people to succeed i mean because right at that time you had something that was called uh black codes that were enacted and what those were were basically uh, contracts that african americans had to sign um that basically uh were labor contracts and it it sought to limit um, any like uh, former slave or free person's economic options and contracts and basically sought to, you know, limit any way that they could uh, be able to get out on their own. And um, it kind of reestablished a discipline. And there's a, a, a story that I, I like to tell uh, that I that I had uh, learned about in the ante, in one of my antebellum classes in uh, at Ohio State, and basically it's about this guy, and um, a lot of times when you hear people just say, "Hey, uh, hey, Mac, hey, hey, Jim," um, it, it kind of does revert back to slavery. And there's one uh, famous story about this guy, and uh, his name was his name was Jim. Uh, uh, he was a former slave and basically he was basically really happy that he had earned a lot of money to or earned enough money to get a hat and he, he really wanted to purchase a hat. So what he did was he was going around the, the town that he lived in and he was going to the different stores. Now, at this time, you know, he yeah, he, he had pride and he was, you know, happy that he wasn't a slave any any longer and you know no one could just you know put him in chains or you know tell him what to do or uh you know he, basically he was a free man so he went around to the different towns and he had the money for his hat but every he had the money for his hat but every time he went into a store he would always be confronted by the white owner of the store uh with a with a different name now his name was jim so he'd go into a store hey mac what can i get for you and he'd just walk out hey bob or hey you know he would uh each white owner would say a different name but finally what occurred was he went into one store and the white owners did the same thing as everybody else and he said hey jim what can i get for you and the the man actually purchased a hat 
and he was he basically kind of felt like he it was a win and that story bothered me at Ohio State and the reason why it always bothered me is because it showed you the power or lack of power that African Americans have even in the microcosm uh, as that story because basically he felt like he was winning because he he basically tricked someone into um saying his name correctly and then purchasing the hat from that person but who's to say that he goes back into that store and he's called jim again he could be called mac the next time by that same white owner because what he was uh looking at as respect uh was not actually respect it was just him just getting lucky and that is kind of something how you can kind of revert back to uh, african americans in society it's not as if the power is there it's just a lot of times we're able to maneuver in a way where there is a facade that's put on it or uh like a a potomkin village and yeah a potomkin village is basically where it looks as if it's something but it really isn't there was a queen um basically from a a long time ago and she was coming to see uh, a village and the village wasn't done so what the inhabitants did of the village was to make it to make it seem like it was uh, a a good you know a big village they would uproot actual homes as she was riding down the street in her carriage and they would move the homes and and then uh, hide them and then take them down the road and then put the homes down and make it seem like there were a lot more homes but what the villagers were actually doing were actually just uprooting homes moving them down the street uh moving them down the road so by the time the queen got there she saw another home but it was really just the same home so that's kind of what you are that's kind of what white america does for african-americans they give us this potomkin village where it looks as if they're giving us something but it's not it's there's no there there a lot of times so that's something that we definitely have to focus on because we can't settle for a potomkin village anymore we have to make sure that our just due is given to us and if it isn't given to us then i mean we have to continue doing what we're doing we have to continue to fight we have to continue to get out in the streets we have to continue to make our voices heard so uh, you know that's something that i really wanted to discuss and uh one uh one thing that you can really uh, juxtapose with each other is really Wall Street uh, along with uh, Black Wall Street. Now, the reason why I say that is because, again, money is power. Power leads to uh, control and being able to uh, run society or or control society to have it in your best interest. So uh, just a little background about Wall Street. I mean, I don't want to go too in depth, but I mean, basically, you know, it's New York's location for the nation's largest uh, financial companies. Um, And basically, Wall Street is just an eight block long street in the financial district of uh, in in the financial district of New York. But it is responsible for 15% of global economic output. I mean, it had, uh, as of 2016, it had a GDP or gross domestic product of $21.4 trillion. And uh, I mean, somebody, you might ask, you know, well, what's GDP? Because like, again, you know, this podcast isn't going to be, or isn't going to be like the other podcast where, you know, I'm just spouting out, you know, big words and not really making it 
understood as to you know what i'm really referring to or really what i'm getting at so basically what gdp is is basically what uh what you're worth it's like the the sum of your market value or prices and basically uh your services that are produced in an economy during a certain amount of time so basically what are what 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 are you producing what are you worth what what are you contributing to the world and that is done during certain times so you might see where uh quarter uh, one quarter gdp goes up or one quarter gdp goes down it's basically just asking what have you done for me lately that's really all it's asking so I just want to make sure that, you know, to whoever's listening to this and they're like, you know, tank, man, what are you talking about with GDP? You know, make it make sense. So I just really want to make sure that, you know, you under, people understand that, you know, uh, this isn't anything that is, you know, something that we can't understand or anything that we can't get. It's just a lot of times it's really put out there in a vague way to where it's uh, supposed to be like a puzzle to us but i mean it's not as if we can't put the, pu the puzzle together and make it make sense to us and when you have uh, something like wall street and it's and it being such a big player the way it is i mean it's going to uh have a say so in the world especially when you're uh you know you're putting out 15 percent of global economic output and that's just us uh or the united states so um it's basically like a trading hub um and it's like you know some of the richest nations are there and um when you then um think back to okay where did it get its name from its name from a lot of people think that it got its name from one or two places it either got its name from the fact that it was derived from an actual wall where it was built to keep out you know, uh, Native Americans, the British and pirates from, you know, uh, uh, pillaging, pillaging them, pillaging the uh, pillaging it. Or it could be that it's from uh, the actual Dutch people that settled the area named as the, the Walloons. And that is very important because either or. If it's the fact that it could be possibly the Walloons lets you know where there are these subtle ways of letting us know how um, there are the, the power lies with white people and not with us. So it's something that I, you know, I take into account because I really like to listen to where a lot of words get their origin from and. I can see how that could be named after the Walloons versus uh, being derived from an actual wall because when they came in, uh, there was still uh, uh, a lot of Dutch people that stayed in that area that actually uh, um, call that area um, that uh, call that area their last name rather than any other area so it would lend itself to the fact that yeah that it would make sense that it's named after the Walloons versus uh, being derived from an, an actual um, an actual wall now then again you also have the fact that when it was first built you had homes there that were mixed together with uh, businesses as well as um you know residents who were beginning to move out because in the 19th century uh midtown midtown manhattan was starting to boom uh, and um you know residents wanted to make sure that you know they had proper housing so they were moving to midtown manhattan manhattan 
And then you can see how New York became so powerful and wealthy in that area because um, not only what did that A block that area start encapsulating other areas as far as other states, it's starting, uh, you know, trading with the world. And now to the point where uh, it has so many uh, uh Departments and and uh, and buildings that you know it's in California and not just in that eight block radius to the point where they don't even call it Wall Street they just call it the street now and when you compare that to Black Wall Street that was uh, it was located in the Greenwood District of Tulsa Oklahoma and it was uh, developed by a wealthy Black landowner named O W uh, Gurley and. He purchased 40 acres and named it Greenwood after the town in Mississippi. And he created basically a system where he was, uh, you know, just uh, uh, just lending money to black people. That way they could, you know, start businesses. And, and you also had, just like with Wall, with, uh, Wall Street in New York, where there were residents who were living alongside these businesses. Now... Um, these businesses, uh, these residents never really got the opportunity to move to another part of uh, Greenwood or another part of Tulsa because their uh, Wall Street was destroyed. Now, um, between 1906 and 1921, that area became sufficient enough to operate itself. It had its own grocery store. It had its own barbershop, funeral home. You had doctors that lived there, real estate agents, entrepreneurs, and all of them operated their business out of that area in Greenwood known as Black Wall Street. Uh, they also had a, there, there was also a newspaper. There was also a school. And um, they even thrived throughout the Great Depression. So while the rest of white America was... Um, actually um being hit um uh, was was actually was actually being hit um you know that the, they were actually uh they were actually thriving so um what happened was on uh may 31st in uh, 1921 basically terror ensued and um there was this uh a white woman um, who said that there was a black shoeshine boy who uh, who had uh, basically molested her. Now, after the, after the uh, investigation had been done, they came to find out that they had known each other, and if anything had happened, it was any it was way less than any type of assault. So um, that it was never really made clear what occurred, but that prominent African community was never the same after it was burned down. And when you think about how uh, well that community was doing, the whole state of Oklahoma at that time only had two airports, but six black families had their own planes in Greenwood. So that kind of lets you know of how well they were doing. And this was just from within 15 years. And uh, I mean, there's always been this fairly complicated history with uh, that area because initially you had uh, Indians that are Native Americans that had uh, lived in that area, uh, like the, the Seminole Indians uh, in particular. And they owned, they owned slaves, they had slaves. But 
when they were they were sent on the Trail of Tears um, uh, uh, by Andrew Jackson, what happened was a lot of those slaves, the ones that didn't that weren't forced out with them, actually stayed in that area. And then they, there was an economic boom, that an, an economic oil boom that occurred. And when the economic oil boom occurred, I mean, you can't really deny anybody because money is just to be had uh, everywhere. So once the economic boom occurred, African more African-Americans came into that area and they wanted to settle. And, you know, they started making lives. And that's when, you know, uh, Black Wall Street, uh, you know, started really uh, beginning to flourish. Now, the KKK always had a stronghold. Where though they have a stronghold, really? But they had a stronghold in that area, and I mean, there were um, there were um, African Americans who were moving to that area because they were trying to escape oppression, like Jim Crow and KKK uh, uh, lynchings. But I mean, you still had the KKK in that area, so um, they were they were really upset because Greenwood was actually starting to grow. Because originally, what happened was Greenwood, uh, the black area, was behind those, were behind a set of train tracks, and it, in effect, kept uh, the, the white, uh, white neighborhood and black air and black neighborhoods segregated by the train tracks. But they were starting to grow, and there were a lot of uh, basically white people who were upset and became and becoming agitated because. Uh, you know, Greenwood was starting to grow and they were feeling like it was impeding on them. So when that when that story came out about uh, the, the was a his name, his name was Dick Rowland. Uh, I believe it was 18 or 19 years old. He was a shoe shiner. And when that came out, he um, uh, um, th- that he uh, had attacked her. That's when they had on May 31st destroyed all of Greenwood and the reason why I find that to be interesting is because uh, Black Wall Street and Wall Street uh, that, that, that we know of were relatively in the same place and I asked myself what if Black Wall Street wouldn't have been destroyed what if those businesses were able to flourish what if the Freedmen's Bank would not have been uh would not have would not have collapsed under bad loans then i would argue that yeah maybe we can be racist maybe you know we can um uh, be racist against white people but in light of those type of things i argue that we can't be racist it's impossible we do not have the institutions set up that allow us racism now, I would argue that we can be bigots. We can even be sexist. African-American men can even be sexist against black women. However, it's impossible for black people to be racist because of the way the institutions have been set up against us to prevent that. Um, now, you know, I mean, both entities, you know, basically started around the same around the same uh, cornerstone where, you know, basically just putting the dollar uh, back into uh, the, their uh, communities and back into their businesses and just building and building and building and building. But at that point, once Black Wall Street was destroyed, that ended for them. And I go back to money equal in power, equal in control, and equal basically having a safe soul in society. So if you don't have money, 
then you don't have power. And if you don't have any power, you don't have any say so. So without that, uh, without that organization, without that money, without that power, we are left basically to the devices of other people. So that's really where I have really based a lot of this off of where, you know, it's not as if we can say that, um, well, you know, black people can be racist. How, How can we be racist? And I would also put that in another light. Let's say you have a black person walking down the street and you have a white dude that walks down the street. The white dude, you know, dirty, doesn't have anything that that black dude has, um, you know, nowhere near what that black dude has. But he says, you nigger, that isn't racism. That's bigotry. That's also ignorance as well. But what racism is, racism is Donald Sterling. Racism is the fact that you can prevent me from getting a job or you can implement policies or you can put something in place that will prevent my growth and development or prevent me from being able to uh, succeed in society. That's what real racism is. Just as um, James Baldwin was discussing in 1968, when you look at today, nothing has really changed. As of 2018, when you look at what the median family uh, income is for black people, either they make more or less than this. It's $17,000. Now, when you look at that for white families, the median where they either make more or less than that is $171,000. So that lets you know how the institutions have been set up for them and are continually uh, to be are continuously set up for them for them to basically um, win and uh, for us to never be in the driver's seat or have equal share to be able to have any type of say so. And we see that with housing. We see that in the political atmosphere. For uh, for example, there is a Congressional Black Caucus, but uh, throughout uh, all of these killings that we've seen, uh, as far as Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, uh, George uh, George Floyd, none, uh, we have not heard anything from the Congressional Black Caucus uh, because I mean they've in a sense been silenced. So um, th- that's something that you can see in the political sphere as well as still in, in the educational atmosphere as well. So, um, you know, that's something that uh, we really, really need to uh, continue to harp on because as long as that those type of institutions are able to thrive, then we're not going to be able to succeed. And I always tell people that, um, yeah, you might not be racist, But think about it. Let's say you have an institution that's created in 1820. It's a, I don't know, it's a a paper institution, uh, a paper company. Now, it's made in 1820 during slavery. Uh, A person who was totally for slavery owns the company. And he puts policies in place uh, in regard to what he wants for his company, uh, what he... uh, what he will deal with in regard to his company and what he doesn't like. And those policies are then 
um, set forward and they go into uh, modern society. Now you have the great great grandson that's running the company, and you know the great grand the great great grandson. You know I'm not racist. You know I have black friends. You know I've I've never said uh, the n word in my life. You know I'm no I'm not racist. The fact that you are still operating a company and institution that was built on racism in effect makes you racist and that's something that people need to understand that the fact that you still operate these institutions that were built on racism even though you say that you're not racism it inadvertently does make you racist and we need to tear down those institutions and build new institutions if we if we think that um if we if 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 we if we're going to understand that uh, that racism is an institution and something that black people just really can't take a part of and really can't have any uh, stronghold in because of the way society has been set up against us, uh, I mean, like I, as I stated previously, in 1970 is when slavery ended because that's when the Equal Housing Act came into place. Before 1970, you could prevent black people from being able to move into a certain district or a certain area just be just because of their color uh, now 1970 came into place and that's one big thing that you saw with like the jeffersons moving on up because it, it kind of uh displayed the the equal housing act because a lot of people don't even don't even know that the jeffersons is, is a spinoff of all in the family because when Archie Bunker came home and saw that uh, George Jefferson had moved in uh, next door, that was still on All in the Family. And uh, uh, Edith would, uh, would, would, would hang out with Wheezy uh, on All in the Family before the Jeffersons got their spinoff. And that was really a take on the 1970 Equal Housing Act. You know, we're moving on up to the east side. We finally got a piece of the pie. You know, that was after Martin Luther King had, um, the uh, Dr. Martin Luther King had been assassinated. And what they were saying was that now you're finally going to be able to have the, that equality that you've, that you've stressed during the 1960s with, with your movement. The fact that um, th that this has been put into place, now you're really going to get that equality because white America has always understood that one major cornerstone for, uh, for society and for people to build and to be able to be successful is to have a home. And you, you I mean, and, and that is something that uh, was stressed then, but the institutions are still in place that prevent us from the, having that equality. Today, you'll see that with white white home ownership, it is above 72%. For African Americans, it's at 40%. And that is depression level numbers. The, the fact that less than half of your population of people are homeowners, and in in versus another set of people where almost three fourths are homeowners, so you can see where the institutions are still in place that are really keeping the odds against black people from being having being able to have that same quality. So 
These are a lot of the things that still come into place that prevent us from having that necessary equality and also prevent us from being racist. Being able to be, me saying that black people can't be racist isn't something that we hang our hat on, isn't anything of pride. It's letting you know that that, that we lack power. Uh, so we definitely need to organize to ensure that that's something that is mitigated going forward. Um, I, you know, I definitely believe that, you know, you know, we can change this. Uh, it just really just basically depends on how are we going to operate in the society where we know that those institutions aren't built for us, meaning that we need to create a new Black Wall Street. We need to uh, create a new uh, bank. It doesn't need, necessarily need to be a Freedmen's Bank, but we definitely need to create institutions that will allow us that equality and allow us to have uh, a say-so in the political atmosphere or when policies are put in place that we can then, um, you know, have a, a say at the table. Because right now, we're talked about but we're not talked to. We are discussed, but we're never part of the discussion. And that's what we need to continue to uh, focus on. That way we know that uh, once, you know, we have our banks set up, we have our institutions set up, then we, when you see a white person come into a black-owned bank and their skin could possibly uh, in and of itself prevent them from getting a loan, then that's when you can say that we're racist. But until that day when uh, uh, when a black person has a bank or a black person has uh, a loan company or any type of institution where uh, you know a white person comes in and it's their skin versus the other way when we know when we walk into a bank our black skin a lot of time prevents us from being able to get that loan that's racism racism isn't just somebody saying the n-word racism is an institution racism is a custom racism is a culture Racism is something where that it's organized, it's structured. It's not by coincidence, it's by design. So I definitely want to make sure that people understand um, that, you know, racism isn't just something where you just, you know, call people a bunch of N-words or a bunch of racist epithets. Racism is something where you have to structure it and you have to really work together um, to make sure that it, 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 it survives. For example, when you think about police uh, vans, what's one thing that you think about? You think about uh, the name of a paddy wagon. The reason why uh, police vans got the name paddy wagons is because when a, a lot of uh, when um, when um, a, a lot of uh, oh goodness um, people that came over uh, from um, oh goodness where, where am I? Uh, Ireland I'm so sorry this escaped me uh, a lot of Irish people came over they were basically treated uh, unfairly and unjustly uh, you know it's kind of like how black people were they weren't enslaved so I won't want to, I'm not going to go that far and say that you know that they were treated equally as bad but there was disparity among Irish people and the reason why um, 
they got the name Paddy Wagons because Irish people were tired of being pushed around. They were tired of being treated unfairly. So they got together and they said, okay, what we're going to do, if we're going to take over a part of society, we're going to be able to put ourselves in society and we're going to have that say so. So what they did was they took over the police departments and what you would see a lot of times were a lot of Irish people who were just taking over the police departments by by swarms, especially in New York. And But you also still had a lot of people like um, in, in the five points where people like Al Capone grew up uh, originally that, you know, were they, they, uh, around, uh, you know, Italians, around Irish people that were immigrants that would, you know, fight with each other and um, you know, they were basically turned into criminals. So the the way the, the police van got the name Paddy Wagon was with uh, Irish people taking over uh, the police departments, but you still having but still having Irish people get arrested. When you would have a police person, a, a police officer arrest an Irish person, you would have uh, you would have Irish people in the front, but you would also have Irish people in the back. Hence the term a paddy wagon, and that that's a, a derogatory term, a der, derogatory name for an Irish person is a paddy. So that's where the name paddy wagon got came from, and then it just translated into uh, time. So now you just hear you're, we just accept the term paddy wagon, but it's not a derogatory term uh, because I mean that's just something that we've grown up with, and when you hear paddy wagon, it's a sense of power. And that's something that, you know, they, they came to all together because they decided that they weren't going to continue to be inferior in society. They were going to have a say so. And they came together and along with Italian people who were treated inferior, they all came together to decide on one thing, that they ain't black. And the fact that our skin is different really needs to be a focal point as to why we need to have our banks, why we need to um, have these institutions set up because, you know, other people can hide, you know, uh, other people, uh, Irish people, uh, Italian people, Germans, they all came together to say we're white and they are not. And now you see how they, how different areas flourish in society. You can see how um, the different, uh, different, uh, different, uh, different, uh, like our Italians have different uh, segments of society. Irish people have different segments of society. Whereas black people who have been here the longest still do not have that because they came together and organized and recognized that if we come together and be against them and keep them from having any type of power, then we can ensure that we have all the say so. So that's just something that I wanted um, people to, you know, just kind of think about a little, uh, think a little bit about because, uh, you know, that is something that I really do. uh, I do feel strongly about that. Yeah. I don't think that black people can be racist. I don't think it's set up in the cards. But, you know, hopefully one day it is set up for us to be racist uh, because that means that at that point uh, we will really we will really have gained equality. So uh, thank you for uh, listening. I really do appreciate uh, you all listening and you all have a great day.
Thank you. 